You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 113 for Monday the 23rd of April 2018. My guest today is Julie Cordiner, a former assistant director of learning and skills and now an independent consultant with over 30 years experience specializing in school funding and education finance. Julie has put her 30 years of experience into co-writing two non-fiction textbooks, School Budget Mastery and Leading a School Budget Review, as well as planning several online courses on related school finance and funding topics. Julie's author journey started in 2012 when she wrote a parish history to raise funds for her local church. For NaNoWriMo 2013, Julie wrote her first historical fiction novel, and that was followed by Pantsinger Women's Fiction Novel in NaNoWriMo 2014. Julie has also attended 20 Books London and is preparing a solid base for her indie author career. When we chatted for the podcast, I asked Julie to tell me about the parish project, which started it all. We were a bit stuck, really, in terms of the church's um, stonework had been just eroded, really, with the uh, wind off the North Sea and the chemicals sort of in the air and the sandstone and limestone and all this sort of thing. And we really needed to do some fundraising. And I've never actually written anything before. So I have absolutely no idea why I volunteered, but I just found myself saying, we could write a history book of the parish. Because um, I was in the choir and I knew there was this trunk in the vestry and it was full of old photographs and documents and things. And it really piqued my interest because I've always done uh, family history research. And, uh, you know, in the old days when there weren't, it wasn't on the internet or anything, um, and you just used to have to go to the library and work on the microfiche and all this sort of thing. So um, I just thought, sort of thought, I'd quite like to have a dig around in there, and the, the stuff that I uncovered was just amazing, and I got on the internet, as you do, and just got talking to family history enthusiasts and local history fans, and the stories that came out of it were just brilliant. Uh, real, you know, old world sort of Victor- Victorian times. Um, so I sort of took a deep breath and started writing. And the vicar was kind enough to show a little bit of faith in me <laughs> <laughs> and agreed to pay for the copies to be printed. So I think we got 300 copies, no, 500 copies we got. Uh, and we're, well, over the 300 mark we've, we've sold. Uh, but it was a bit of a sort of a mission project as well, not just purely about the, the money. Um, so it was just to try and capture people's interest, and it certainly did. And the day when the boxes of books arrived, it was just an amazing feeling. And I think I was just hooked from that point on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you can get a really good view of this book when you look at it on uh, Amazon in the Look yes. Inside feature. And I've been flicking through having a look at it. And it's quite an undertaking, Judy, for a first book because you've gone <laughs> really for the hard stuff. You've got images and text. And I know that's a devil of a job to do. Yes. I mean, I have only done it in print form. Uh, and it was a case of just sending a PDF to the printer. 
and they did the rest and they did the cover design and everything and I loved the cover design I just thought that was wonderful um, and it was just very satisfying um, I am actually trying to see whether I could do an ebook from it but that's quite a difficult undertaking with so many images you know I mean in the print book I've actually got color plates in the in the center of the uh, stained glass windows because how I did it was I looked at the families that had given the furniture and the stained glass windows and the silverware and stuff and just sort of built up a picture of the community and the type of families that we had. We had a lifeboat, uh, lifeboat crew and we had, you know, a family of, with 14 children lived on the green in this quite small house. <laughs> and I just sort of built up the pictures. So I think it might be quite difficult to do as an ebook. I have started. It's, it's in Scrivener. The text is in Scrivener. I've just been trying to format my images to, to see just what sort of delivery cost it would be. Yes, it's uh, well. It's a very ambitious project for a first uh, project. So congratulations uh, on that. And um, in, in terms of the research and things like that, I mean, you you were like um, a fish in water, presumably. That you enjoyed all of that straightforward for you. Yes, definitely. It's a bit bizarre because I really didn't like history at school, <laughs> um, and it, it was only in later years that I really got into it through the family history route, really. Um, and I just like putting together pieces, you know, pieces of jigsaw, just fitting them together, I suppose. Um, it's it's a sort of a discovery, journey of discovery, really. Uh, and then just trying to write it up in a way that was engaging. Um, but I've had some absolutely brilliant letters from people who've read the book. I mean, it's gone off to Australia and New Zealand and on America and all over the place. People are sort of um, got copies for their family who used to, you know, have ancestors who used to live here and so on. Um, so the tentacles have sort of spread around the word, world. And I've had the, the most wonderful letters uh, from people about how much it's meant to them to read about their relatives. It's just been brilliant. That's a wonderful first experience. You said earlier yes. that it, you sent it to the printer. Now, hang on a minute. This sounds this sounds like we did it the old-fashioned way. So was this like self-publishing um, like Mark One, in which you sent it to a printer, then you bought copies and then sold them on. Yes, this is 2011. Yeah. Um, and we, we I just researched around and uh, came up with York Publishing Services and um, talked to them. Uh, they were really nice, very helpful, and we just got a quote from them and worked out a price that would see as a decent return. I, w I was so relieved when it actually broke even really, really quickly because mm. <laughs> the church was gambling, really. <laughs> and we're still selling copies now. It, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing to introduce new people to the church because there's a lot in there about all the vicars that we've had and just how different customs have built up, I suppose, from the church. It's a wonderful first experience. What did you learn from that that you've taken forwards into your own uh, publishing career, which we'll discuss in a moment? Mm, I think persistence. Um, it really did. I was a very, very busy at work. Um, I was an assistant director of education, and so I didn't really have very much time at all. So it was about the value of just finding slots of time and concentrated effort, really, because if you leave it too long, then you lose your focus and you have to remind yourself where you got up to and you have to, you know, you waste quite a lot of time just getting back to the point at which you left it. So I think, you know, that sort of little and often and just that sheer determination. When I had my deadline to send it to the printer, I agreed it 
um, the day before we were going on holiday. So there was no room, <laughs> no room not to meet that deadline. And uh, I was up until after midnight just, just finishing it off so I could press the button and then go off on one of our many holidays <laughs> with a clear conscience. Um, but I think just knowing um, how to do your research, and I, I did learn from that process because the temptation to just get my head in the research, I was enjoying that aspect of it so much. And to actually think, no, I've got to crack on, I've got to actually finish this, otherwise it's never going to see the light of day. We had a very tight timescale, really, to do the fundraising, um, because the east end, of, east wall of the church was actually in danger of falling down because the roof had been badly fitted and water was getting in and all of this sort of thing. So, you know, we had a big heritage lottery grant, and there was lots of other different types of fundraising going on, but I did have a deadline. So I think it just taught me the discipline, really. And it just it just really sort of motivated me to think, I like this. This is what I want to do. And I decided very early on I was going to use the research for a novel. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so, uh, so you started with the – you kind of took the history forward and said, it's the history I like, that's what I want to move into fiction yep. with next. But it's still quite a leap, isn't it? Because fiction is quite <laughs> different from, from non-fiction, very different from it. Yes, and that's the struggle I'm having, <laughs> to be honest, um, because I, I, you know, I, I'm always one that I like to do my research. I like to understand the process, um, and so really I did a lot of preparation before I ever put pen to paper even trying to write any fiction, um, and so I, I did various, I followed various people and I found Joanna Penn uh, very early on um, but uh, there were also people like uh, Katie Wyland and Holly Lyle on the sort of creative writing side of things and I just sort of came across people and, and followed uh, people and, and picked up the odd course and, and so on and that was how I discovered the Festival of Writing at York uh, which really sort of helped uh, much more than anything else had I think. Yeah, I'm a bit of a fan of the Festival of Writing at York. It's a really, it's quite traditional in nature. There are very few um, self-publishers there, I found, but it's a wonderful little event and what a great uh, location as well. Oh, it is. I, I think, you know, you and I have the same approach, don't we, Paul? You know, we, we like things to be up in the north for a change. <laughs> we do. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is a very London-centric industry, really. So it, it is. It's a beautiful setting with the university and the willow trees and the lake and the ducks. And <laughs> uh, I had a good walk around there last September when I was there, actually, and, and investigated a lot more of the grounds, and they're absolutely beautiful. But I think it's the community there above anything else. And I think I found a link with the, the family history type community and the community of writers. You know, they're both very generous with the time as communities and they just want to help everyone. Um, there's none of this sort of, oh, well, if I tell you that, then you're a competitor and that's not right. You know, there's none of that. And I just think York typifies that. And we all support each other and are really, really pleased when anybody else succeeds. Um, you know, so my fiction is definitely slower. I, I did um, NaNoWriMo was how I got started in, in actually attempting a draft of my historical one. And I did that in 2013. And then the following year, work had just taken over. Um, 
the dreaded Ofsted um, and, and so on. Oh, I know uh, all about that, Julia. I, I, I escaped teaching in the year that <laughs> Ofsted started doing inspections. I'd just gone out by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> oh, well, this is a local authority inspection because by then I'd been asked to lead a uh, school improvement uh, as well as all the support services. And uh, three months after that, they arrived and uh, deemed was inadequate. So I, I spent a year trying to put that right. Um and because obviously it was fairly new to me and uh, so with a few allies uh, I just knuckled down and, and did that uh, then I, I and so I hadn't had any time to sort of do any edits of that and I thought well actually I quite enjoyed doing that so I'd quite like to do NaNoWriMo again um, but this time I just tried to do it as a pantser uh, and just picked a, a contemporary fiction uh, story that had been in my head for a while um, but that wasn't as successful because I'm definitely a plotter and a planner by nature. Um, I don't feel I got the depth of characterization or, you know, I didn't really think the story through. I have had a manuscript assessment on that and there are more plot holes than a pair of fishnet types, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It's very demoralizing, isn't it, when somebody sees things like that? <laughs> but I think it, I, I, want, I did it at the right time because I did it when I'd sort of done a first draft, but I hadn't really um, sort of gone through it uh, meticulously. Um, I'd done the self-editing course from the Writer's Workshop, which was the most fantastic course I, I would definitely recommend to anybody that wants to understand how to self-edit their books. Uh, and it's a six-week um, online course, and I think there were about 14 in my, my group, and they run it quite fairly regularly. And uh, Debbie Olper and Emma Darwin are the tutors, and they're just absolutely amazing. And you call, each week is a different part of the novel writing process or the editing process, rather. Um, so you do character, you do uh, plot and characterization, and there's a bit on um, psychic distance, you know, some of the techniques and your, your actual narrative style. And you have to post. It's just about 250 words. Um, each week of your own writing that demonstrates the particular area you're talking about. And then everybody critiques everybody else's, which was terrifying for me because I'd never shown anybody any of my fiction. <laughs> it is terrifying prospects. I, I would be, it's funny because I've published a lot of stuff, but that would terrify me, that really close <laughs> attention to my writing, people picking over small amounts of writing. But did you find that boosted your confidence more? It absolutely did, yes, because, you know, you would get um, the, the critique sandwich, if you like, you know, uh, and so you get lots of praise and lots of good comments from everybody else because you're all struggling with the same things. And even though you have very different genres among the group, uh, although it was peculiar because I did my historical fiction on this on this course, um, which was based uh, around sort of one of the families in the research that I've done, but very loosely. I've just changed the whole thing, really. Um, and I, I just got some really lovely comments back about it, and it, it did definitely boost my confidence, but it also showed me how to improve on it. How did you find your experience of doing two NaNoWriMo's? Did you do the word count during those NaNoWriMo's? Did you, did you hit that target? Yes, I did. Well yeah, done. both times, both times. Um, it was mainly sort of getting up early uh, and then really blitzing it on a weekend. <laughs> so I didn't like getting behind. I like to make sure that I did my 1,666 words every day. <laughs> mm. 
Well, you, you've done very well then because you were uh, keeping down a very sort of senior uh, and busy job. You were under fire at work. and You did extremely well um, keeping that word count up because that's often the problem for, for many writers is they just can't actually even get the words out, first of all, let, let alone have time to edit them. Yes, I know it is difficult. And I think it's, um, it's really up the pace now because I've then moved on to nonfiction around school funding. Um, and, you know, I have so many ideas there and with doing blogging, um, I do conference speaking. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to do starting off some online courses. Um, so it's, it's just finding the right pockets of time. And I think for me, it's, it's not just about sort of being organized and productivity, but I've just started to realize I think it's quite seasonal for me. And it's partly down to the rhythm of the year in terms of the work I do. So because I do consultancy um, uh, and I have a long-term consultancy job, which is at the moment, well, it's just gone down from two and a half to two days a week. Um, the, the budget period for, for my work as an accountant in education finance is really hectic from sort of October through to February. I find it quite difficult to do non-fiction and fiction together at the same time, you know, even if I'm sort of doing mornings for one and afternoons or the evenings for another, I just can't quite get my brain in the right place. And the best time for me for writing fiction is in the summer when I'm more relaxed. The pressure's not quite as intense work-wise, um, getting in with school holidays and everything, and particularly when I'm on holiday and when I'm, you know, pegged out by a swimming pool, <laughs> I have a lot more ideas. <laughs> but I think that's, I mean, that's true of, of many people, isn't it? That sometimes your mind can be so busy with what's immediate, and in your case, that's your work and your consultancy, that you've barely got any airtime air in your head to, to think mm. about the books. But then when you relax, it can flow again. Yes, that's right. And particularly with an area like school funding, there's so many changes. And we've just gone through an absolutely massive change where they've completely revamped the whole system for getting funding from the government to local authorities to schools. Um, and there's been it's been rumbling on for about, well, probably 15 years, really. But <laughs> um, most recently, they've really um, succeeded in pushing it through. Um, and just there's so much information. And part of what I do really is try and simplify that information for everybody because it, I'm quite passionate about education. It was my way out of poverty as a child. Um, and it really means everything to me. And to actually think that there are head teachers that have never really touched a budget until the day they become a head teacher is just bewildering. You know, where else? Would you find that? I suppose you might find it in GP practices. <laughs> you know, there's lots of people who are quite daunted by finance, even personal finance. <laughs> yeah. But to be responsible for, you know, a multi-million pound budget when you first become a head teacher must be really terrifying to a lot of people. You can't be expected to be an expert in everything. So what I try to do is condense all of this information it's been doing for 35 years, you know, I, I know my way around it, but trying to make it as simple as possible for people to understand. And that really does take a lot of concentration. Can we talk about the life events that made you step back from 
the five day a week kind of work and, 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 um, shape your life in a different way because you've got quite an interesting, you, you and I share a, 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 a similar rhythm to our week in that we, we do a certain number of days of a day job and then we have a, a other time around that. So I'm just interested to dig into how that happened for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've always been, you call it a type A personality, wouldn't you? You know, a really, um, perfectionist, what, a lot of drive. And that was really, I know where exactly where that's come from. Um, my parents split up when I was 10. And so I, I think I've always sort of had that drive that I wanted to prove myself because it was quite a stigma in those days. And I did go to university only because my English teacher said, you should go to university. And I said, what's university? Um, and she told me, and I liked the sound of it. Mm. <laughs> and I applied to do English literature. Uh, but I ended up doing a joint uh, English and classics, and I gradually got more and more interested in the classics during the first year and switched. Um, I had to learn um, Greek, ancient Greek, from nothing to A level in a term <laughs> to, so, to avoid doing the first year again. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> and I did it, but I can't remember a thing about it as a result. <laughs> um, but so, so I got this career, I left, left university with a, a classics degree, and um, as you do, went into accountancy. And uh, I just really went full pelt and loved it, absolutely loved it, and got straight into the sort of education side of it. But it was, it did take its toll. Um, I had cancer scare, and uh, after an operation and so on, I, I just thought, right, I'm not going back to that sort of silly, you know, on the laptop at all hours. But I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then after the Ofsted, uh, incident I just thought you know this is taking me away from the finance stuff that I love and perhaps I you know need to think about doing something else um, and I didn't I didn't want to sort of give up work completely but then my husband's uncle was diagnosed with brain tumour and died three months later and I just thought what on earth am I doing um, sitting in front of a laptop at all hours of the day and the night and the weekends, you know, mm. and I just thought this is not not for me. And then my daughter announced she was pregnant, uh, and uh, that was our second grandchild. Um, my son already had a daughter, but they lived down in Warrington. And I just thought mm, something's telling me <laughs> it's time to change here. So I applied for early retirement and, and got that. And Ofsted came back the week after I retired <laughs> and uh, said everything was all right. So oh, <laughs> I went with a clear conscience. <laughs> um, but it, it just, I, I, my idea was I just wanted to free up some time for writing. Um, I, I believe that, you know, I, if I could just dedicate some time to it, then I could crack this and I could actually learn to write fiction um, but at the same time I got lots of requests from people to say well could you do a bit of work for us and could you do this and we'd really like value for money review of this and so I sort of got drawn back into it and I set up uh, my consultancy so I again I'm still back to juggling but the difference is it's doing what I want to do and I can say no to things that I don't want to do yeah, it's, it's interesting. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Being able to structure your week and to be able to say, no, I don't fancy doing that or no, actually, I fancy a day out that day. <laughs> it makes all the difference, even though you're probably working as, as many hours as you, as you were or pretty close to it, yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but isn't, isn't the control, the, the 
the flexibility the thing that makes all the difference in the world? Oh, absolutely. It's the freedom. I mean, Joanna Penn talks about this a lot, doesn't she? And, uh, you know, I completely 100% agree with her that, that it's the freedom that it, that it gives you. And, you know, yes, I have the luxury of a pension to fall back on. If I could do nothing, um, you know, my husband's still working. He's, you know, he's, he's really supportive. Um, and But to be able to, you know, go off to York for the festival writing for the weekend, go to retreats, to go to day courses... Uh, you know, to I, I do hard online courses and, you know, the books in the cupboards and on that iPad and Kindle and stuff, you know, I'd, it would take me forever to get through them all, I'm sure. But it's just being able to pick and choose and, and do what you feel like doing at that point. So you you did the church book and that's available on Amazon. And then when we, when we look at your mm-hmm. author profile, you've, you've got the other two uh, education-based books. So the, the fiction sounds like it's gone a little bit on the back burner for the time being. It's, it has. I really wish it didn't. Mm. <laughs> and so I'm deciding this year is going to be the year when I really do start to pick up that creative bit um the, it may be slightly towards the back end of the year because my co-author has just had a baby girl <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she's on maternity leave at the moment and so i'm picking up all of, instead of sharing the, the blogging and the newsletter and the, the writing uh, i'm doing it all at the moment so uh, i suspect there might be a, a slight uh, delay again um but i i would like to over the summer um, focus on that much more and I'm going to start just on my commute up to you know work on a, on a morning on the two days a week where I am working uh, I'm going to start using that for my uh, fiction I think because otherwise it's just not going to happen are, are you on the train or in the car or the bus I'm on the train ah lovely yeah so it's very handy that isn't it to get the work done mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is why I like I prefer trains because you could work on a train and or or listen or or be active. You could do something productive, can't you, on the train, which is always nice. Yes, yes, you absolutely can. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going down to London for a creative writing workshop with Andrew Willey as well in a couple of weeks' time, and um, so I'm looking forward to that. So it's a nice long train journey. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So let's let's dig into then the this sort of school financial side of things. I'm interested because you're doing collaborative writing, first of all. Now, again, you don't do things easily, do you? you know, most, pe- most people would start something on their own. And, and collaborative writing, well, there's all, sort, all sorts of opportunity for falling out and disagreements there. So how did that come about? Because it's obviously been very productive, very fast. Yes, and I think that was really from being aware that, yes, I knew the strategic side of it and I knew the local authority side of it, but I haven't done the actual school business manager role myself and so I felt that anything I could offer would be a bit one-sided so I knew Nicola Flint my co-author for for a number of years in the work that I've been doing and uh, we'd always got on really well and she was actually on maternity leave with her first child a little boy Uh, and I went to see him uh, and her and him after he'd been born and uh, I was just sort of catching up with Nicola as to, you know, what I'd been doing and so on. And we just sort of got talking about this problem of head teachers, you know, not not really being able to access information very easily. It's very fragmented, the information's out there, but not necessarily, you know, in a convenient form, if you like. 
And she said, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) And we got talking and um, it just seemed a a perfect combination. And I I know, you know, people are very sort of wary of it, I guess, um, because it is something that you, you potentially could have to compromise on quite a lot of things. But because we knew each other, because we respected each other's skills and knowledge, and we were both very experienced in what we do, um, I think we we bring complementary skills to it. And in particular, it's the support element, I think, that I found most beneficial. Because, you know, you can get a bit down, can't you, when you're just on your own, plugging away at a book, and you're thinking, I'm not quite getting this right. I can just ping an email over to Nicola, or I can go and see her. We, we have regular meetups on an evening round at her house. Um, so, you know, every, maybe it's every quarter, every couple of months. Uh, it depends what we're doing. And we just jolly each other along, really. You know, we, the other one can pick you up and say, oh, no, this is, this is, do it. This is fine. You know, I, I know exactly what we can do here. Um, and just being able to do that forward planning and map out exactly what you need to do it, instead of a self-imposed deadline. I mean, you think, oh, I can just slide that, you know. It just, you bounce ideas off each other and you agree something. And we don't, like, beat each other up about it if we don't make the deadlines. We just shift them. But just that, that accountability, I think, really helps. And you've got something to celebrate with as well, instead of doing your, sad, you, you know, your own your little sad little happy dance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I take my wife out for a meal. That's how we celebrate. So, <laughs> it's a good excuse to go out for the night. So that's how we celebrate. <laughs> you need to think bigger here, Julie. You know, wine and pizza or whatever. <laughs> oh, there's, oh, there's plenty of wine, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you what I do like about these books. I think you've done an excellent job of the branding. I love the the handprints. And when mm. you look at both of those books, you know, you can see they're part of a, a very nicely branded series. How, how did that come about? Because that's very strong, straight out the gate, that is. Yes, I think, well, I I think we're both um, left-brain people, but I think Nicola in particular is really quite creative. And we just um, just throw ideas around until we get something. And we we did a bit of sort of visioning session, really, and we just wrote down all the words that we wanted to associate with our brand. And one of the biggest things for us is, and I think what, what has made us both successful in, in our respective careers is, for us, it's all about the outcomes for the children. It's not just about money and about things. It's all about what ultimate um, outcome you achieve for the children in education. And I don't think enough attention is necessarily paid to that by people who are actually in charge at the government end. Um, you know, this sort of treat like widgets even. <laughs> um, and we just sort of thought, yeah, we want to, you know, remind people that it's about the children. And um, my granddaughter was uh, a baby. Uh, then and uh, Nicola's son was uh, a year old and we just thought wouldn't it be great if we actually put their handprints on it so it's the two children's handprints so it symbolizes both of our interests uh, coming together really that's that's it's a lovely touch that and and you'll be able to admire that for years to come which, yeah. is, which is brilliant 
Um, and it's my granddaughter on the cover as well. Oh, is it? Oh, right. <laughs> and Nicola's son and uh, cousin on the other one. Oh, well, you know, because they, you can. <laughs> well, they, they look, you know, they look really uh, professionally done. They're really nicely done. Did you did you send those off to an artist to to uh, assemble all of that? Because it, it... no, no, um, no. They, we uh, Nicola knew somebody who who does our covers and uh, the website for us and so on. So so it was all part of all part and parcel of that. But I mean, I I, I was really picky actually about the covers. <laughs> I was uh, I was very firm, um, and we you know we sort of tossed lots of different ideas around and lots of different versions about the background and everything so it did take quite a while but I just think you know when it's right don't you yeah they're very nice they, they really do look good there so uh, you know, congr- you. congratulations on that um have you gone through you. I know a lot of people who collaborate um you know they've got all the contracts and things set out did you go down that formal route or have you you just kept it kind of between the two of you no, we haven't yet. Um, I've been listening to various podcasts and so on. Uh, and, you know, I think we probably should um, just to keep it all above board because you never know if anything happened to one of us. You know, we trust each other implicitly. But if anything happened to one of us, we would just want the other one to be on solid ground, I suppose. So I think it probably would be a good idea to do that, something that if we manage to get time at some point, <laughs> I think we probably will. Yes, it's, it's quite, I always say to people, it's it's worse than getting married to somebody uh, collaborating because um, the, the royalties could go, is it 70 years, 75 years after your your death? It goes to your estate. So it's quite incredible. Mm. We, we need to sort this out, really, don't we? We need to simplify this system, I think, um, for, for, for organising this, um, even if it's a, a central agency or something that manages it on our behalf or something like that. But it's quite complicated at the moment. It will put, put me off, I think. Yes, I think so. I don't know whether it's something that Ally or the Society of Authors might think about to make it a bit easier. Yeah, it's a great idea, actually. They would, they would be precisely the people to, uh, you know, third-party manage that, wouldn't they, I think, and uh, mm. the, the payments. But, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, so many people collaborating these days. Somebody's got to come up with an innovation to make it uh, <laughs> to, to make it easier and more automated because I think the best we can do so far is that people sign contracts and one poor soul has to do the accounting every month and and sort of pay it forevermore so um you know we must be able to improve that in this day and age I would have thought mm-hmm. right. I would have hoped so <laughs> <laughs> I hope um with, with these books then when you're writing them do you plan the content first and say I'll do this chapter I'll do that chapter and and do you then also, I know you said you use, or you have, you're using Scrivener at the moment. Do you kind of share the files so that you could both see them? Um, not through Scrivener, we don't. No, I, I already had Scrivener because that's what I've used for my fiction. Um, Nicola doesn't. Um, and what we do is I just do a down, I do a compile from Scrivener um, into Word and send it to Nicola. But to, to answer the question that you first asked, um, we do plan them out. So we actually, I think for these, we had a session um, at Nicholas where we had a kitchen table and a load of post-its. And we just said, right, for a series of books, what are the big topics that we want to cover? And then we gradually just went down the tiers for each of those topics and got ideas and then shuffled them all around. So we came up with a, a series of books. So we do actually have several that are planned and in the pipeline um we just want to take our time we don't you know we're not ones that rush it off because it's so important that we get the facts right that we get the process right that we make it 
ex explain everything as easy as uh, clearly as possible. Um, but you can't rush these. So we we just did plan it all out. And when we pick one book and say, right, uh, what usually happens is that I'm working on one as doing the first draft, and Nicola will be working on another. So we sort of take a lead role for one book each, and then we swap for edits, and mm. then we go back and forth until we're happy, which can take quite some time, I have to say. <laughs> 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 because... You know, you, it's it's quite interesting um, seeing it from somebody else's perspective and uh, just sort of thinking, hmm, is the order right? Or, you know, would that be better here? And have we gone into too much detail there and not enough detail here? And so there's, it really sparks up quite an interesting discussion sometimes. And on occasions to say, ah, uh, that's too much detail. We could actually make a whole new other book out of that. <laughs> so let's set that aside. You know, we, we don't want to give, we don't want to sort of uh, burn all our books uh, in, in one. Uh, let's let's leave that for another book sort of thing. So that, that's basically how we do it. What you're building here is what I call expert positioning, in that you've got the book, uh, you've got the website, you've got the consultancy, and you're doing the training. So actually what you've created here is a whole uh, universe, if you want, a whole learning um, universe. Now, that, that's quite punishing in terms of the skills that it requires of you. Um, there's, there's an awful lot involved in just that. How have you uh, responded to the other things, the, the non-book parts of that? Um, I think it, the challenge is that I'm pulled in lots of different directions, I think, is the answer to that. But it, it's this difficulty about being able to just single-mindedly sit down and focus on one thing at a time and I'm not terribly good at that mm. <laughs> <laughs> so but it can actually work work quite well because for example this week I've been writing I'm actually rewriting a book the very first one that we published back in 2016 which was called Secure a Sustainable Budget and we published that with a toolkit and uh, to you know give schools a lot of Excel spreadsheets to build up this model to try and forecast their, their funding and that was a bit too complicated we covered our costs it, 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 sales covered all of our setting up costs for the website and everything and the cover and, and whatever um, but I'm rewriting it now because so much has changed with the funding landscape um, so that I'm, I'm doing that and I got a little bit stuck um, over the weekend with one aspect of it and I just switched over to doing the teachable online course that I've just started to put together around how um, head teachers can be an effective school sport representative, because that's a role that some of them play uh, in helping the local authority to take decisions. Now, Teachable is a very nice platform to use. I, I, I'm a bit geeky, as you know, and, and I can actually do it in WordPress. But I had a go at Teachable. I bought Teachable about a year or so ago. I had a go of it and thought, oh, I love this. I'm not bothering with WordPress. This is, this is far easier than WordPress. How, how are you finding it? Oh, it's so easy. It really is. I mean, it's, and when you're used to giving presentations, I do a lot of governor training and head teacher training, school business managers and so on. Um, and, you know, you can, prepare a, a course and deliver it and then you can just translate it into Teachable as an online course. It's, it's brilliant. It's so easy. Um, the only quibble I have with it is that it's not um, a, a sort of a marketing tool. You know, you, you have to direct people to it. You can't search on it for courses about XYZ. 
Uh, it's interesting that you say that because that's my quibble with it too, in that it, it doesn't come with a marketplace. And I'm surprised that they've missed that opportunity, to be honest with you. You know, in the way that, um, have you seen, um, or what's the American one? Um, oh, I'm Udemy. Udemy, yes. Udemy. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they come with a marketplace and they help you with the marketing. I'm amazed that Teachable hasn't quite, you know, hasn't treated, that hasn't rumbled, uh, or the penny hasn't dropped. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, yes. It would help. I think it? it would in some way. I think, I think the reason they haven't is that some people, at least this is what I picked up from some of the Facebook groups and stuff that go with it. I think some people are actually nervous about the competition. Hmm. And so they prefer people not being able to see other people's courses on the same subject which to me is silly because you know you you get your customers your you know your fans from your particular way of being and doing something and you shouldn't fear the competition because you know if the competition is better than you then you know people will go there and you need to accept that and up your game um, but I think the trouble with Udemy is they can just decide to charge what they like for your course and they have massive, you know, they slash the um, cost quite regularly in sales and things. What? So, you know, you're not in control and I am a bit of a control freak as you've probably gathered. <laughs> well, that, that's true. Um, I've, I've been on Udemy for some time, actually, you know, several years and I, I'm off it now um, because in the UK, Teachable manages the VAT for you, which is, you know, which is levied oh, yeah. on. Uh, and Udemy doesn't manage the VAT for you in a simple way. So that, that's what moved me off Udemy. But Udemy, uh, this is, this is like one of the cautions, uh, and, and we're vulnerable to this on Amazon, of course, of building on third party platforms in that mm-hmm. Udemy used to allow people to charge what they wanted for courses. But after a certain amount of time, I think they discovered, I think the price was something like $99. They, they discovered what the sweet spot was. They got better at what they were doing and realized that the sweet spot was something like it was either 197 or 100 or 99 and so they just said right all courses are going to be less than this amount because that's how we sell them and for anybody who built a business on it it was just like you know hard luck and uh, but this mm-hmm. i always i always say this to people i know Jenna penn's very big on this with amazon that when you go exclusive with anybody they can they can whip the carpet from underneath you and change yes. the rules which is always a little bit um worrying i think mm-hmm. have you have you gone exclusive with amazon at the moment are you have you thought about that sort of side of things um, I, we've started with Amazon, but we haven't gone for Kindle Unlimited because we don't think our customers are on Kindle Unlimited for this sort of a book. And actually, in the first couple of months, just, just going from that with the first book, we about equal between um, e-book and print. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? For, for is, fiction, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, we, we, we're tipping over into more on print. And we had a, an inquiry from Bertram's about the first book and a separate one from another distributor. And so I just put it on Ingram Spark, um, which was slightly challenging. <laughs> yeah, was, it, was it you, Julie, who was having the problems with the embedded fonts? Yeah. Oh, they're a was. devil, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, they're a devil. Uh, and you know, it was something really simple in the end. It was just ticking that PDFA compliance box. Yeah. And I spent hours trying to fathom this out, but it wasn't wasted, though, because I did find my way around how to format a Word document properly with styles um, to make it much easier and much quicker. So I've now got a ready-made template for my future print books for both the CreateSpace and for Ingram Spark that, that I can just slot 
the book into. So, you know, it, it's much slower going at first, isn't it, when you're trying to understand all this. And I'm just in the middle of um, Smashwords to actually go wide on the ebook side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense with the, the kind of books that you're doing. And I also think that um, the Ingram Spark thing makes a lot of sense too, because yours are the sorts of books. They're such a, a by, by niche, I mean, it's a huge niche because it's every school in the United Kingdom, which is a huge niche. It's a, a wonderful um, you know, a wonderful number of people could buy, but but it is a niche, isn't it? And so um, I can imagine people wanting to buy, you know, 10, 20 for staffs and things like that. So it's pretty important, I think, the Ingram Spark thing. Yes, I hope so. Um, I do think, though, that the quality of the paper isn't as good on Ingram Spark. Um, I've got two copies, uh, put them side by side, and the Ingram Spark one is definitely thinner. And you can see a little bit of the print coming through from the other side of the page, you know, where you drop your beginning of a chapter, you drop your chapter title. Um, at the top of the page, you can just see, you can see the uh, print on the other side. Oh, bloody so, fussy customer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm doing a couple more conferences in May, one in London, one in Manchester, and I'm, I'm sort of umming and erring. I was going to actually order a few from Ingram Spark because they're cheaper to order your own copies there. Unless you do that thing on Amazon of dropping the price, taking a gamble, ordering yours, and then putting the price back up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's still, I think the printing cost is still probably dearer on Amazon. Um, so I, I think I, I've gone off the idea of printing copies through Ingram Spark. I will just take some, exactly some sample copies, I think, um, of, of the Create Space ones. I know when we were chatting at 20 Books in London, um, we were talking about how. Uh, you would market these books and which social media channels you might go on. I think, was it you, Julie, who said two people have just told you that you should forget Facebook and Twitter and you should be on LinkedIn? Was was that the was yes. that, that was that was our conversation, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think so. I mean, I, I already am on LinkedIn and mm. I've found that really effective, actually, um, particularly just sort of making contacts. Um, and, I've, you know, I've got contacts in people that run training courses um, some of the journalists that, from like TES and uh, that, that ring me up and ask about particular technical aspects of things that they're running features on but they just want to check something um, and I think it, it's just trying to pitch the right sort of tone to the right sort of people really um, and be supportive because there's lots of people who are offering goods and services to schools um, and it's it's difficult because it's that thing about you really need to have experience of something to be able to recommend it, but you have to be really careful uh, about what you recommend. So, you know, it, it's generally better to just be sort of generally supportive to people who are trying to help schools with their finances um, because the implications of, you know, a couple of years of, of not enough funding to cover pay awards and other cost increases are making it really, really difficult for schools right now. Um, and there's lots of campaigns and so on. But I think it's just that making those connections and, and supporting people who are just trying to do the right thing for schools. I tell you what, are pretty good in, in LinkedIn, in mails, which um, if you get a free month's trial, uh, I've got one at the moment, actually, because I'm using it for my other podcast to contact hard to reach people. But if you take a free one month's trial within mails and then have a nice list of people that you're desperate to get to, influencers, um, then you could use it for free for a month. And then just every now and then, just get a free month of in mails and contact people. Oh, 
How does that work then? I don't think I've even heard of in-mails. Oh, well, in-mails are a way of, um, when you're not connected to somebody on LinkedIn, you can't, uh, you know, you can't communicate with you. You've got to form that kind of social relationship. Whereas with in-mails, mm. uh, in-mails have a very high response and open rate because um, they're non-spammy. So you should always send them in a very directed and purposeful way. But they're like a, an, an emailing system within LinkedIn. But it means you could email somebody um, that you're not connected to, but they, because you don't get many of them within LinkedIn, they're very highly controlled. They're not for spam and, and mass messages and things like that. They really are for reaching out to somebody specific. Then, um, I've had great success rate getting people who, you know, it's really, I use it when I can't get pie gatekeepers. You know, when yes. they constantly put you off and you just need to jump mm-hmm. the gatekeeper. I go straight to the person um, and, and they're very good for that. Mm-hmm. But just take a, a month's free trial is the trick. <laughs> don't don't pay for them. They're uh, expensive. No. Um, and <laughs> have a list of people that you're frustrated that you can't contact and try in mails for that. It's very effective. And, and obviously you, 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 um, you know, don't write a really long, uh, in mail, but do say why you're contacting and what the, you know, maybe I saw you at a conference or I, I read your yes. book. You know, always have that connection with them so that you're not some mm. str- stray nutter, um, you know, contacting somebody. Um, and yes. they can see from your profile that you are serious because you've got all your, you know, lovely, professional credentials mm. on your profile and it works extremely well um so in your in what you're doing i would expect it to you know to be quite an effective uh technique Wor- worth trying it probably i would say yeah oh thank you for that so i haven't realized that that existed i know there's lots of different levels isn't there in linkedin where you can buy you know if you change your membership and so on uh, yeah they're mm. usually quite expensive and as i say I'm, I'm following my own advice because i've just done it this month and i'm trying mm. to get to load of crypto people for my other uh, podcast oh, yes. interviews. <laughs> I, it, I, I know it works. So I, I switch it on and off as I need it. It's a, it's a good little technique. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and also, I mean, I'm on um, uh, Twitter. There's a group of us that um, set up from, I think it was uh, around, I can't remember whether it was NaNoWriMo or time or another time. And we just encourage each other. Yes, I think it was NaNoWriMo. And we encourage each other. And, and if any of us is doing anything in particular, you know, the others are tweet about it and support and, and so on. And that's quite nice because that just gives, you know, that, you know, you can, you can count on them to um, add their voices if you like and spread it wider. Now, this is the bit in the interview, Julie, where I say to you, look, you've been incredibly productive with your nonfiction, but we need to dig into what's keeping you with your fiction. Okay, <laughs> you're not going to get away with it. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so you know, you quite clearly are very happy, very productive with the non-fiction, but the fiction we haven't got one out yet, have we? And we need to be getting one out, Julie. I know, I know, and it's it's sort of a, a passion project that I'm not making time for. And the thing was, I, I think I realised why, or well, not particularly why, but. Um, as you know, I'm a fan of Joanna Penns, and she did this uh, short, she's been doing these uh, short YouTube uh, videos, which are really good, and she did one about the fear of judgment, and it really struck a chord with me, and I thought, well, you know, I'm very confident about my non-fiction, because that's what I've been doing all these years, and why do I think differently about fiction? i don't know whether I'm creative enough to write fiction and I think think that's at the heart of it because I'm very left-brained, very logical, very methodical. Um, You know, I I like the strategic 
stuff, but I'm also um, very pernickety about the detail. And, you know, I don't know that I'm good enough for, to write fiction. And it's, it's silly. You know, why, why shouldn't I think that I could do that just as much as I think I could do the other stuff? And it just occurs to me I'm sort of compartmentalising it. And I don't quite know why, but I think I am. Uh, so I think it's sort of a procrastination. I, I read an awful lot about writing fiction. I just don't actually do the writing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how, how are we going to get through this block then? Because we, you, I mean, you've done fantastic things with the nonfiction, but clearly this fiction lark is, is bugging you. You, you, need to, you need to sort this. So, so how are you going to get through that? Because, look, you're a writer. You've got three books out there. No one's judged you. You know, it's going very well. So there's no reason not to have a go at it, is there? No, there isn't. It's just time, I suppose. Um, but it's everybody's got the same amount of time, haven't they? And it's how you use it. <laughs> At the moment, I'm not sure what I could actually give up to make room for it. So that's, that's the difficulty. Um, but as I say, I think if I can get into the little and often rhythm and do some of it, one of the things I do is that I have my um, manuscript, my rough draft in Scrivener, and I actually compile it as an ebook and download it onto my iPad because then it looks like a proper book. Mm. And I pick up so much more from doing that than looking at it on the screen. Um, it's more, it's kinder to the environment and trees than printing it all off. And it's much more practical because you can always work out where you were. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it's, I've got a mini iPad mini, um, so it's handy to just pull that out on the train. And I just, uh, I, I read through it uh, about three or four weeks ago. And I looked, I, I was reading through it and thought, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I do there. And all right. So, because the, the problem is that when I actually wrote both of these, it was before I'd done very much um, sort of practical workshops. It, like, you know, I hadn't been to festival writing, for example. I hadn't, you know, been to the retreat and whatever. So it was just what I've managed to glean from the books I happen to have read about it. And I feel I know so much more now about the craft of writing. And I've also joined, there's a, a local group called Northern Writers, um, and I can't always get to their meetings because they have them on a Sunday morning and we've been in the church choir on a church <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Um, but they did a Saturday one um, a while ago, which was really good, um, where we sort of took our, our writing problems and all discussed them and uh, just went round the table and that was really good so I think I sort of need that external sort of push really left to my own devices I'm sort of almost scared to touch it um, but I have to say I'm going to this uh, creative writing workshop um, it's I think it's Words Away is the um, the organisation that's running it uh, and it's Andrew Willie who's the tutor who I've been to one of his workshops at the Festival of Writing he's great and it's about um, sort of creativity and, and magic and sort of inspiration and all of the, the fire, you know, the elements of fire, air and water. Um, so I just think that's something completely different to what I've ever done before. And I just really fancied giving it a go. So I'm hoping, and that's only a couple of weeks, I'm hoping that's actually going to be the springboard for me to really seriously, honestly, Definitely. I'm staying here. I will. Go for it. Go for it, Julia. <laughs> I just think it, it's, it's 
coming up to the time of year when I'm more productive in a creative sense anyway, I'm more relaxed, um, you know, the pressure isn't as quite as intense as it is during the winter months. And I hate the winter, I'm a summer child. No. <laughs> um, you know, my, my birthday is August, so I, I you know, I've, uh, I've always liked the summer. Um, I know you're hugely into learning. I just wanted to, mm. um, could you just share your kind of best go-to sources of of information for people who are, you know, maybe where you are? Where, where, where do you go to learn? Um, I think probably much the same as you, really. Um, Joanna Penn's podcast, definitely. Um, there's this self-publishing journeys, which is quite good. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Heard a bit of a cowboy on the quiet, I have, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, Mark Dawson, I follow. Um, uh, I got the self-publishing 101 course, and I follow their podcasts, Mark and James Blatch. And um, I quite like the worried writer Sarah Painter. Oh, she's good, isn't she? Yeah, I like her podcasts are great. Um, the um, Festival of Writing, obviously, at York Writers Workshop, although there is a little bit of controversy at the moment around this new Jericho Writers. and the Oh, yes, I've seen that. Cloud. Yeah, mm. saw that, yeah. Wasn't sure about that, actually. <laughs> well, sorry. It's quite disappointing. Mm. Yeah, it's quite disappointing, really. There's a whole host of writers who've been on the word cloud, which is this sort of forum, um, for years and have organised their own competitions. And so many people have like myself, have, have sort of come to the Festival of Writing and bought um, manuscript assessments and joined the self-editing course and done all that on the back of being a, a member of the cloud and other cloudies, as they're called, um, encouraging them to, to go and buy all of these things because they are very good. And it's just it's causing a little bit of unease at the moment. I think oh, we don't like change. We don't. We don't like change. <laughs> oh, I'm a change junkie. I love change, <laughs> but only if it's um, got a rationale to it. And it's. I just have doubts about whether the model we're proposing is the right one. So, mm. but it's. You know, I can understand what they're trying to do from a business perspective. You know, because Nicola and I have discussed exactly the very same thing: having a subscription um, site, and you know, it's it's um, it's a tempting thing because lots of people have made a great success out of it that if people really do appreciate what you do then you know a subscription model allows them a much deeper access to uh, and better information uh, and much deeper access to what you're doing but it is a difficult judgment really it's a business business call the, the other thing i did want to ask you about is i, I know you're big on organization and time management and in your note to me you you gave some really interesting sources of of where you go to, to get productivity and time management tips. Could you just share mm. those with us? Because I hadn't heard of all of these. Some of it was new to me. Right. Yeah, I mean, um, I picked up a podcast by Mark McGuinness. Um, he's guested on some of the podcasts. But the tip I like, particularly liked of his was that he, at the start of each day or the night before, he takes a post-it, just one of your little square post-its, and he writes down what he's going to achieve the next day. And it's deliberately small. Um, and it's whatever size suits your writing to put on just the number of things you definitely can achieve that day. And if you're not sure, it doesn't go on. And the good thing about that is once you tick them off, you've finished for the day and you can stop beating yourself up about things. 
So that, that was, I find that really useful because I always overestimate what I can achieve in a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's making sure it's the, the, the big things and the, the definite things that, that you must do that day. And if anything comes along that day that doesn't absolutely have to be done that day, but it's urgent, it just goes on tomorrow's. <laughs> and I converted that into a little notebook so I could actually look back. Um, like you, I keep a whiteboard. Uh, but mine's just a small one, a monthly whiteboard. And at the end of each month, I take a photograph of it and I save it in a Dropbox folder so I can look back and actually remind myself what I have achieved because I'm a great one for beating myself up about the things I haven't achieved. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good one. You know, I, I was looking at my photos of the day and I've got several years worth now of whiteboards. And if you ever feel that you haven't done anything or it's just not going well enough, it's actually quite nice to look back at those and think, well, yes. there you go. There it is. It's all ticked off. I have done a lot. Um, you know, I am making yeah, progress. Yeah, and there's something symbolic. There's something symbolic, isn't it, about rubbing it all off yeah. <laughs> and starting again. I, I love the new – well, I do mine quarterly, but I love the quarterly board. I get really excited about it now. It's very sad, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I've been, I've been wondering whether to do a quarterly one myself because I think uh, just doing monthly means I lack the big picture, which is why I picked up on these productivity planners. Um, I just saw it was probably a sponsored Amazon ad or Facebook ad or something um, by a guy called Charlie Gilkey. Never heard of this. G-I-L-K-E-Y. Um, and it's called productivity planners. You can actually download them free just on a month-by-month basis, but he has annual quarterly, monthly, weekly, and daily. So you can sort of go for whichever level you you want. But the beauty of that is it it makes you think longer term, and then you break it down into chunks. Because there was something I was reading the other day when I was preparing for a training course for governors, and I really liked it. I I wish I could remember where it was. I'm sorry, I can't. Mm -hmm. But it it was this idea that um, if you've got a big, elephant that has to be eaten for want of a better phrase um you look at what you want to achieve at the end of the period whatever time point you're talking about and then you halve it and say right well if it's say, a 12 month goal in six months time i have to have got to here and then you halve that again in three months time this is what i have to do and it just chunks it down into smaller pieces somehow makes it more manageable so looking ahead then talking about planning and longer term planning do you feel like you are a writer now or will you feel like you're a writer when you've got your fiction done what what are you there or are you still very much on the journey um that's a difficult one really i think um because i've gone down the self-publishing route I think I can call myself whatever I like, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do feel I am a writer. Um, I'm just not as productive on the fiction side as I have been on the non-fiction. And I think it's more about a creative itch that I need to scratch to get the fiction done. I don't feel it would validate me any more than I already feel validated, if that makes sense. Um, it's just something that has been a long-term goal, I suppose, a long-term wish, um, that the parish history writing sort of sparked off in me, and I've prepared for it in an awful lot of ways, you know, with all the reading and the podcast listening and everything that I do. Um, I just think I need to be much more um, 
disciplined and actually making time because that's for me rather than you know what I'm doing with the non-fiction is I'm, I'm I suppose I'm giving back after having had a career that I've loved and I'm in a fortunate position of being able to do that um, and I think the fiction is more for me and so I always put you know so I, I put everybody else first <laughs> and I think you know it's just realizing that it's perhaps I need a bit more me time but I'm more likely to have that now because I've now got two three days a week <laughs> as opposed to one because uh, I look after my granddaughter one day a week as well so um, it's just balancing balancing it to achieve what you want to Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.